Well, good morning, and good morning online, and uh, all that uh, are in the hearing of my voice. Merry Christmas to all of you. Just want to say that. If I don't get a chance to say it personally to you, Merry Christmas. I hope this is a wonderful week for, uh, for you and your families, and uh, to think of all the uh, gatherings, and, and maybe this year some, some uh, less, less gathering. Uh, but whatever it is, Merry, Merry Christmas to, uh, to each of you. The DeWitts will be staying in Indiana this year, and uh, so we will be uh, right here in the community. Probably won't see you, but we'll be here in the community, and I hope, uh, I hope it's a great, great week. I do want to just reiterate, you know, Christmas Eve uh, this year, a little different for us. Uh, as I said a few weeks ago, we're not going as, like, big as we typically do for Christmas Eve, but we are having Christmas Eve services, and the online feature, I think, provides a unique opportunity. Maybe if you are gathering, hey, you know, why don't we watch uh, our Christmas Eve service? And uh, the gospel will be clearly presented, and there is an opportunity there maybe for your family to hear in a way they would never, you know, the, that family that would never darken the door of a church. Uh, well, you can bring the church to them. And so maybe God will use that in some unique way this year. We certainly hope so. So Merry Christmas, everyone. We continue our, uh, our series here for Christmas entitled, From Above to You. And we are seeing in, in this year's series, Jesus as a, as a gift, a gift from God to us. And we saw in the, in the words of the angels, they, they said it very clearly, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that words of the angel that night echoing the prophecy from Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And we see in those those, uh, prepositions and pronouns that God intends for us as humanity to realize that Jesus is a gift, that Jesus is God's gift to us. The fact that it was announced to the shepherds, the lowest rung of the social ladder, was intended for uh, all of us, for all these centuries, to realize that if, if the announcement was for the shepherds, then the announcement is for us as well. And last week we saw that, that Jesus, who he is as a gift, is an indication of what, from God's perspective, our greatest need is. God didn't send an Amazon gift card. He didn't send a plumber. He didn't send a musician. And why not? Because our greatest need is not a, a gift card and more stuff or a, or a plumber, uh, although a plumber is always welcome in every home for sure, especially a good one. Uh, what did God send? God sent a Savior, a Savior from their sins. And that is an indication from God's perspective of what we actually need. We need a Savior. We are lost in our sins. And Jesus is the perfect correlation to the need that sinners have. So he meets that need, we know, by dying on the cross. You know, if Jesus would simply have come and then gone back to heaven, the incarnation doesn't save us. It's a part of what, how God saved us. But if Jesus simply was born and became human, that would still be amazing, and we would still sing songs about it, but he wouldn't save anybody by doing that. That's what the cross is for. That's what the empty tomb is about. So this is a gift from God, apart from works, so that no one can boast. And friend, I want you to realize that Jesus is the best gift that you could ever receive. He's the purest gift. We know that there's no strings attached 
in this gift. This is not a, a transactional gift where God is giving us a gift and he's hoping by giving us a gift that he kind of gets something out of the deal. There's none of that with God. It flows from his sovereign love. It is an act of his sovereign grace. It is for his eternal glory and for our eternal good. Jesus is the best gift that we could ever receive. Now today what we're going to do is we're actually going to skip ahead slightly in the story from the Gospel of Luke, from the birth narrative to what happened right after the birth narrative. You know, when the angels appeared that day, that night in Bethlehem, they made an announcement about who Jesus is. They identified him as, uh, as, as the Son of God, Savior of the world. The human announcement about Jesus happens after his birth. Now, you might think to yourself, ah, we're talking about the wise men today. No, we're not. In fact, the wise men probably didn't show up for maybe up to two years later. There's a different announcement, a human announcement, and it has to do with a fairly obscure elderly man and a very obscure elderly woman. They make an announcement. There's no glory light. There's no shepherds. There's no sheep. But here's how it goes. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, quote, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now what Luke is highlighting here is part of the Old Testament law. And in the Old Testament law, if you were a firstborn son, there was a, a, a requirement that the family would to, was to present this son and for him to be, quote, redeemed. And that was a payment of five shekels at the temple. Now, there was a provision, if you were particularly poor and could not afford the five shekels, that you were to, you could, you could merely present two turtle doves, I think there's a song about that, or two young doves, two young pigeons. And we note here that Mary and Joseph did not do the five shekel, they did the two doves. And what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus was born into poverty, that Mary and Joseph were not you know, secretly wealthy, stealthily wealthy, uh, but that actually they, they were poor. And so they take the poor man's uh, option in the law. And so we see in this a humble birth, we see a humble uh, home, we see a humble family, even in the ceremony. Story continues now, and here we're introduced to this guy. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon. Okay, Simeon was there before the wise men. I've never seen um, a manger nativity scene that includes Simeon. 
Uh, maybe it's because it was at the temple, I don't know, but the wise men weren't at the nativity either, but we're all comfortable putting wise men there. But this is part of the, uh, you know, the confusion about Christmas. But I'm digressing now because you all know that I'm averse to wise men at nativity scenes. I make the point every year. Uh, we want to be a biblical church, but okay. So truth be told, we might have a nativity or two that have some wise men, but the girls hide them somewhere and we don't see them. So, uh, But anyway, the, the, the wise men... Uh, we're not there at the nativity. Simeon wasn't, but he was there at the temple, okay? So 40 days after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph, they make their way up to Jerusalem. They're very nearby. They're in Bethlehem, five miles or so. And they are, uh, pre- they're going there to present Jesus. And we're introduced to this guy named Simeon. And what it tells us here is that he was a righteous and devout man. Simeon was not a priest, He was not a Levite. In other words, he wasn't an official kind of religious leader or man in the the community. He was was what we would call a layman. And I just want to highlight something here on this point. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a priest. He was a godly layman. And sometimes we have the mistaken view that the really godly people in the eyes of God are those that are pastors and are missionaries or something like that. But no. God doesn't look, God looks at our heart. He doesn't look at our titles. And I think someday in glory that the, those that are gonna have the greatest rewards are not gonna be you know, people like me who have a title in the church. It's going to be godly, devout men and women who their heart was totally for God. And that's Simeon, okay? No title, but just a man who loved God. And the text says that he had a passion for, quote, the consolation of Israel, verse 25. Now what's that? That's messianic terminology. That Simeon was a guy who had in his heart the coming of the Messiah. He was on Messiah watch. He couldn't wait for the Messiah to come. There's a ministry up in uh, Wisconsin called the Shepherd's Home. And uh, the Shepherd's Home is one of these very special ministries. They, they, they care for people who have uh, you know, special needs, and they, they, they've done this for many, many years. Uh, it's really one of these very tender kingdom ministries. I've been told that at the Shepherd's Home, they have a hard time keeping the windows clean. Not on the outside, on the inside. And the reason for that is that there's smudges on the, on the windows on the inside because every day so many of those residents are going to the window and they're looking out the window to see if today is the day that Jesus returns. How are the windows of your house? Are they smudgy? Or the windows of your heart, perhaps, to ask that question. Is there a sense of longing for for Christ to come, you know, even his second coming? That's the sense of of Simeon. His his windows were smudgy uh, because he was very much anticipating and looking and excited about the coming of the Messiah. He was on Messiah watch. And interestingly here, it tells us, it doesn't tell us how, but somehow the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that before he would die, that his own eyes would see the promised Messiah. What a wonderful promise that would be. And so the day comes. Mary and Joseph, they have Jesus. They're coming into the temple courts there in Jerusalem. Somehow the Holy Spirit indicates to Simeon, today's the day. 
and he makes his way into the temple court there as well. And here's the moment, verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. What a moment for Simeon. We don't know how, I mean, he maybe has been waiting for this moment for decades. We don't know how long uh, he had been, since the Holy Spirit had told him that he was gonna see the Messiah. But that day comes, he goes into the temple court, Somehow in his heart, he knows there's Mary and Joseph. They would not have stood out. You know, we typically think like, you know, wherever Mary and Joseph went, there was like a halo over their head or maybe Jesus, like the paintings, had a halo over his head. No, they look like every other normal kind of poor Jewish couple coming in for the firstborn son to pay the temple. But somehow he knew. And he comes up to Mary and Joseph, and, and the text here says that he scoops Jesus into his arms. I assume he asked for permission to do so. <laughs> but he just scoops Jesus into his arms, and he is thrilled to see with his own eyes the Messiah. An excitement, a, a, a longing now fulfilled. He sees Jesus, and he, it elicits a, a kind of praise, a kind of song, and it's filled with Christological significance. Look what he says about this baby. I have seen your salvation in the presence of all peoples, light for the Gentiles, glory for Israel. In a few verses, it's going to say that Mary and Joseph marvel at what Simeon has to say about Jesus. And this is after they have seen the, uh, the, the angel Gabriel and heard what, from the shepherds what the angels said. I mean, they've already heard a lot, but Simeon even shocks them with what he has to say about this baby Jesus. The Gentiles are included in this, which I wonder if Simeon whispered that part in the temple because that would have been you know, scandalous uh, there in the Jewish temple that maybe God's salvation is for the Gentiles as well. We don't know. But what we do know is that there was only one person in that whole temple complex that realized who was walking into the temple, that here now has come the Messiah, this baby Jesus. I am, uh, I, am, I am a Star Wars fan. I am not a Star Wars fanatic, okay? I have never dressed up for a convention uh, or anything like that, but I, I'm a Star Wars fan. And so uh, over this last uh, year, um, I enjoyed the little miniseries, The Mandalorian. Maybe some of you have watched that. It's on, you know, it's being advertised right now all over the place. Uh, I enjoyed watching it as I worked out on my treadmill uh, it was helpful to keep me thinking about the pain I was experiencing by watching this series. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting series about a, a, a kind of baby, a little green guy, who uh, nobody really realizes the significance of who he is. And yet, just the little bit that they know, all these galactic empires are desperate to try to get their hands on 
this little green guy. He's so small, and yet he's obviously so incredibly important. That's part of the magic of that, of that series. And it, it strikes me as a similar kind of theme that we have with Jesus and his identity as a baby, where you know, there's only a few people that kind of are starting to realize the significance of who this baby is. And clearly the angels understood it, and Gabriel understood it, and, and now we have Simeon, one, uh, one guy, this layman, who in a unique way understands the significance of this child. This little baby, apparently helpless, apparently completely dependent on his parents. But if a hustling and bustling crowds there at the temple would have realized who it was that just came walking into this temple court, they and the whole nation would have bowed in worship to him. Is that not the intrigue of Christmas, the wonder of Christmas, that this baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, is simultaneously holding the galaxies together by the power of his might. It like blows our minds, right? To this day, it blows our minds. And yet here we have Simeon, the little light that God had given him, celebrating light, that, that Jesus is light for the Jews and Jesus is light for the Gentiles. He is a savior for the whole world. And what comes out of Simeon that theological truth is in his heart, what comes out of him is a kind of song. We don't know that he sang it, probably not. But Luke, Luke is kind of, you know, it's the, 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 the birth narrative, it's, it's like hymnology. Everybody that begins to understand who Jesus is, they just burst out in praise and song. We have Elizabeth in chapter one responding with praise. We have uh, Mary's Magnificat, right? A song of praise from Mary, in chapter one, Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's dad, breaks out in praise. We have the multitude of the angels who are praising God. And now we add Simeon, who just, he understands what's going on and he breaks out in song. A joyous song of the heart. And I, I just wonder if maybe we shouldn't take that as a kind of cue for whether this year, Christmas 2020, we're actually getting what it's about. Because everybody that gets what it's about, they break out in joyous song. How's your heart doing here? Five days before Christmas. Got a little joy in your heart? A little song in your heart? A little gladness about this baby? Is your heart singing? Now we could wish the story would end right there. Right? Old man comes in, he's glad about the baby, feels kind of like a baby shower almost, right? Just sort of a happiness about a baby that's come. Amen. Let's move on. But the story takes a dark turn now as Simeon turns from the baby to Mary and has something to say to Mary. Interestingly, he says it to Mary. He doesn't say it to Joseph. This kind of fuels some of the speculation that Joseph, at some point in Jesus' life prior to his cross, died. Mary, Joseph is not at the cross. Mary's at the cross. Simeon prophesies to Mary. He says nothing to Joseph. We don't know. It's speculation, but maybe it's true. Verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So the thoughts of, from many hearts will be revealed. Imagine being the mother hearing Simeon offer a prophecy and saying that a sword is going to pierce your heart. What would a mom think in a moment like that? Like, what's he talking about here? What, what could he possibly be referring to? I do wonder if 33 years later as she stood at the cross and saw her son being crucified, if perhaps in her mind she went back to Simeon and thought to herself, now I know what Simeon was talking about. As a sword of sorrow pierces my heart right now. What I want to draw our thoughts to is one part of Simeon's prophecy. He says this about the child. This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many. The fall and the rising of many. That's a odd way to say it, isn't it? The fall and the rising. How do we normally say that? We say the rising and the fall. Right? So when you want to read about the Roman Empire, you might read a famous series called The Rise and the Fall of the Roman Empire. Or you might read about uh, Nazi Germany, The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich. Or like me, again back to my treadmill, watching a series on Napoleon, it, it's not titled this, but it could be The Rise of Napoleon and then The Fall of Napoleon. Napoleon as emperor at Versailles, Napoleon at his Waterloo. Some of you are going, I should have listened in history class. But the great kingdoms and the great men and women of history, there is a trajectory that is always the same. There is a rising, and then there is the falling. But Simeon here says it the other way. He will cause the falling and the rising. And we could ask, you know, he was an old man and, you know, perhaps he was a little confused here. He was so excited and in his excitement he sort of misspoke, you know. He just said it wrong. We all do that. Some of us are paid to do it in front of a lot of people every seventh day. Uh, we all make mistakes in what we say. Maybe he just kind of, he got it backwards accidentally. Yet Simeon said that Jesus will be the cause of the fall and the rise of many. What does that mean? It is a description of the spiritual effect that Jesus will have on the world and on many, many people, including people in this room right now. He will be the cause of the fall of many and he will be the cause of the rise of many. And friends, this little point is the massive difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world and all the other self-helps in the world because all of them, they, 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 they are the, the cause of the rising and they promote a kind of religion and truth that is intended to make you a better person to elevate your life, to, to, to bring meaning and significance 
to your life. Join this religious group and your life will be better. Rise is the message of most of the religions of the world. And then Christianity comes along. And it's actually the opposite of that. The message of Christianity is not come and rise. It is come and fall. Fall. Falling as in a sense of my own unworthiness. Falling in the sense of my conviction of my own sin. Falling in the sense of my spiritual emptiness. You know, Christianity doesn't begin by making us better. It actually takes who we are and puts a mirror up and says, look at who you are in the eyes of God. You are a sinner. You're a, you are spiritually bankrupt. You are empty. Jesus' teaching does this. This is why, you know, Nicodemus comes to him, the most, one of the most religious men of the day, a fastidious Pharisee, and, and he meets with Jesus, and he says, we know that nobody could do what you're doing if they weren't sent from God. And Jesus' response to him leaves Nicodemus scratching his head. What do you mean I gotta be born again? Nicodemus struggled to understand the teaching of Jesus, and millions of people to this day not only struggle, reject it. Why? Because the message of Christianity doesn't begin with making us feel better. It doesn't begin with making us look better. It doesn't begin by making us actually morally and ethically better. It begins the opposite of that. And the natural person doesn't want a message that begins with the fact that I am a sinner before a holy God, that I have nothing at all to offer him. And yet that is the story of the gospel, that is the ministry of Jesus. When we understand Christianity, we don't rise in our own self-estimation, we sink all the way down to a place where we realize I'm actually not that great. I am not a good person who needs to be improved, that's religion, I am a sinner who needs to be saved. That's Christianity. Falling. I think of Peter, who in the face of a miracle of Jesus said this, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. There was something about the life in the ministry of Jesus that didn't elevate people initially, but it caused them to mourn their own sinfulness. This, uh, not in my notes, comes to my mind. I think of the, uh, the famous story of Billy Graham, who, you know, Billy Graham liked to play golf, as all godly men do. <laughs> but Billy Graham uh, was playing in this pro-am, and there was this sort of notorious womanizing, hard-drinking, hard-living pro that was matched with Billy Graham in this pro-am. And uh, his friends were kind of teasing him, like, hey, you're playing with the religious guy. And uh, they wondered how it was going to go. And so they played the whole 18 holes, and, and, and uh, one of his friends looks out after the tournament, and he sees this guy at the range, and he is just pounding out balls at the range. And, he could, and he's just furiously hitting them. And his friend could tell he was super upset, and so he went to him, and he said, what did Billy Graham say? to make you so mad. And he hit another ball and he said, he didn't say anything. 
The popularity of Christianity, or at least some versions of Christianity, when properly understood, should kind of surprise us. Because it is, it, it's not a message that begins with anything that the natural man or woman wants. But Jesus is the cause of our falling. Our falling, our understanding that we are sinners. This is Jesus later in Luke. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Luke 5, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Mark 1, Jesus went out and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Peter answers on the day of Pentecost when all the people are they're cut to the heart to hear the message, the very first sermon. They say, what should we do to be saved? What's Peter's response? Go and live better lives. Go and, and show the goodness that's in your heart. No, he says, repent. Repent. Christianity is, it takes us down. And from that spot of understanding my sinfulness, what is the proper response? I'm a wonderful person. Look at me. Look how good I am. No, it is to cry out to God and to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And friend, have you fallen? Have you, have, have you fallen? What do you see when you look in the mirror? Amazing, wonderful person? Or a sinner saved by grace? Because the gospel and the life and the ministry of Jesus takes us down. I remember in my own life, I was saved as a boy, but I, even as a boy, I remember intense shame that I felt in my heart and guilt. I knew I was a sinner. And one of the things I remember after I received Christ as my Savior, as a six-year-old boy, I still to this day remember I felt clean. I felt clean. And this is the necessary first step. Jesus causes the falling of many. Have you fallen in your own estimation? Have you come to a point in your life where you have recognized the desperation of your moral and spiritual condition before a holy God? Because when we get to that point, we realize how much we desperately need forgiveness. Really, how much we need a savior. And lo and behold, now Christianity steps into that existential, spiritual longing and presents a real savior. This is the rising. It is the falling and the rising. The falling, then the rising. What is the rising? I'm, I'm tempted here to say it's the resurrection or you know, there's some other things, but that's not the point. Rising is a summary of all the saving benefits that God gives to the sinner who acknowledges his or her sin and trusts in Jesus as their savior. Now Christianity lifts us up. Now Christianity gives us an identity as children of God, members of the family of God. Now Christianity has something to say. This is the positive. 
And we know from the story of Luke and the other gospels that this baby indeed grows up and, and becomes a man. And as a man, he has this incredible ministry of healing and teaching and masses of people are crowding around him. And he is, he is teaching them the truth. And we know that this same Jesus, that the, the religious leaders, they were jealous of him all by God's plan and the activities of Satan. And they nailed him to the cross, just like Jesus said they would. And the Bible tells us that as he hung on that cross, having never sinned, here now is the cause of the rising. He died in our place. He died for our guilt. He died for our sin. He died that he might be the cause of the rising of many who put their faith and trust in Christ and experience in that the forgiveness of sins and the taking away of that shame and the glorious assurance of eternal life with God forever. Would you call that rising? Did, did old Simeon have it right or not? Was he just old and said it wrong or did he have it exactly right? Because if you're a Christian here today, you have experienced this rising, not in all of its fullness, okay? You talk to me one second after you're dead and then you're gonna know how high he has taken us. Because as low as the falling is, the rising is far greater. He takes us to the exalted position of being sons and daughters of God, living forever. Heaven, the new earth, forever and ever. Would you call that rising? I do. This child shall be the cause of the falling and the rising of many. So what does that mean for us today? I've got two, two applications. The first one is uh, just something I want to note to our church family. And that is that this is a reminder that the younger, of, to the younger of us, I'd like to include myself in this still, to the younger, uh, and, and an encouragement to the, to the older around here. It doesn't tell us how old Simeon was, but his prayer would seem to indicate that maybe he was nearing the end of his life. We know, I didn't even talk about Anna, who is, is next here. She was 84 years old and was a widow for most of her life. And she comes up and she also understands and recognizes who Jesus is. And it's just noteworthy to me here that the two people in all of Jerusalem who had spiritual insight were both elderly. And I say that in a day where, in our culture, where youthfulness is idolized. And we tend to think that the cutting edge of what God is doing is amongst the young people. That there's special insight that the younger people have. And yet with Simeon and Anna, neither of them were considered hip. Neither of them were considered cool. Neither of them were sort of next generational type leaders, and yet they were the ones God chose to hold the Messiah and declare who he is. And I just think we need to keep that in mind. You know, we're a multi-generational church. We have, I can look out here, I see, I see lots of, of uh, uh, dark brown hair and a lot of hair that used to be dark brown. And it's easy to drink the Kool-Aid of our culture and to, to buy in that young is where it's at. 
And I just think Anna and Simeon have something to say. When you, when you talk with one of our elderly saints here, you may not realize who you're talking to. I've had this experience many times. One story comes to my mind early in my ministry here at the church years ago. I went to breakfast or lunch with one of our senior saint men. And we got talking, and he happened to mention to me that he was a Marine in World War II. And that he was in the Pacific. He was one of those guys that stormed the beaches at uh, Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima. Now he had my attention. And I was young and dumb, and I asked a dumb question. I said, did you ever have to kill someone? He rolled up his sleeve, and he pointed out a big scar on his arm. He said, Japanese bayonet. I said, where's the guy that did that? And he looked at me, he said, he's still there. And he said it with a kind of tone that made me think that he was thinking to himself, I could take you out with this butter knife anytime I wanted. <laughs> and this was a sort of, you know, hunched over, sort of elderly man. You would never realize who you're talking to. And I've had that kind of discovery over the years here in talking with our dear elderly saints. And to hear, not, I mean, those stories are certainly interesting and important, but in the church context, spiritually, the kinds of ways and faithfulness and lives that many of our saints have lived, I just think it's important for we young folks to bear in mind who we might be talking to and to not somehow think that God isn't working in the lives of the seniors because Simeon and Anna stand out in this story. And all the young people said, Amen. and all the old people said, nobody wanted to admit that probably, but. <laughs> Secondly, is just to reinforce what I think you've heard from me today. And that is that the gospel is the falling and the rising. In that little statement, we have such a picture of what actual Christian salvation is. And that's the, the main thing that I want you to get today. And to ask the question, have you ever fallen? Have you ever fallen? My fear is that maybe you would somehow come to our church and you're inspired by the stories or you like serving in some sort of way. Uh, you, you think Pastor Steve is funny or whatever. And so you sort of are like part of our church, but you never have come to a point where you've actually taken the first step of what the real gospel is. And that is that this is not a place for you to become more than you are. It is a place to realize who you actually are. Not in your goodness, but in your sinfulness. And we're all in the same boat together, okay? I throw the same stone at myself here. We are all sinners. And the message of the gospel is that we are great sinners, and Christ is a great Savior. And the great sinner part is the falling. And the great Savior part is the, is the rising. You know, these teachings of Jesus, they're like impossible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Anybody do that this week? No, not perfectly. Love your neighbor as yourself. How to go with that this week? Poorly, just like me. You read the actual teachings of Scripture, and it's like the old saying, we don't break the Ten Commandments, they break us. They break us. But from that place of brokenness, 
the falling, the glory of who Jesus is, the perfect Savior dying on the cross in our place for our sins, from that perspective of falling, the cross and the empty tomb and the message of Christianity rings in our hearts, causes a joy and a a gladness like Simeon, a song in our hearts. And so I wanna ask, have you fallen as a sinner? Have you risen as a saint? And if not, put your trust in him and rise forever with eternal life. Praise be to Jesus, the baby, who has been the cause of the falling and the rising of many. I'm glad to number myself amongst them. Merry Christmas.